This is Dylan Pachulik, founder and CEO of XL Real Property Management, and this is the Real Talk Podcast with Taki Yamaguchi. Episode 78 of the Real Talk Podcast, and thank you always for our listeners. Just wanted to wish everybody a very happy new year. It's a pleasure and honor to have our first guest of 2023 in person, second time appearance on the Real Talk podcast, my friend and industry colleague, Dylan Pichulik of Excel Property Management. Dylan is an NYU alum, true New Yorker, and also the, obviously the CEO and founder of Excel. Excel is a leading New York City property management firm that specializes in managing the assets of condos and co-ops and townhomes owned by individuals and institutional investors throughout the world. His real estate background started at the ripe age of 18, working with my manager and my friend and my man and a friend of the podcast, Gordon Golub, at the legendary firm known as City Habitats. After Sid and being a broker and joining the City Habitats marketing group, representing their larger development clients at the time, Dylan then dove further into property management joining Zeal Feldman's HFC Capital Group, another legendary developer in New York City. There, Dylan managed their several million square feet of condominium and new developments throughout Manhattan. Their projects include the Bell Nord, which is really one of my favorites in the Upper West Side, One Madison, a lot of stories on that building in New York City, One Madison on 23rd Street, Devon Condo, you know the Devon Daniel. Yeah, it's, our, uh, it's one of our favorites as well. There's a, a celebrity owner that uh, did, actually our, our client owns an apartment that was sold by one of the celebrity owners in the Devon. Anyway, let's see, what else? 45 Wooster, Herald Towers, The Tempo, The Bryant, just to name a few. Dylan currently lives with his wife, kid, 60 pound golden doodle. Two kids now. Two kids, oh my goodness. Two kids now. Two kids. Yes, a beautiful golden doodle, big one, in Greenwich Village. Please follow Dylan at Dylan Pachulik. I'll put it in the show notes. And his website, xl-rpm.com, which I'll also put in the show notes. Dylan, welcome. Talk, thank you so much for having me back on your podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure. And, you know, we did that Zoom podcast during the, the height of the COVID market just because you had, obviously, a great insight, but, you know, on the market itself, but just... The whole process of getting on Zoom and recording podcasts is very, uh, I don't know, cumbersome? It's not real. It's not real. It feels like it never (laughs) happened. And we all operated for, what, six months on Zoom where we're seeing people on a screen and pretending to be functional while not being functional at all at the same time. It's great to be in person because you can never replicate the uh, the feeling or energy through a Zoom screen as, as, you know, doing it in person. So uh, I'm glad that we're here in person. I'm as always, I'm here with my co-host, Danielle Stout. The podcast is produced by the talk team, written by the talk team. So we are independently run. So before we get into our set of questions, I do want to give the audience an opportunity to get, Dil- get to know Dylan a little better. So since this is our first podcast in person, let's uh, start off with some warm-up questions. Perfect. Okay. Uh, g- Give us a, a little information on where you're from originally and where you grew up. 
Oh, great. So I actually, believe it or not, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Nice. So most people are confused by that because I have no accent whatsoever. The South. The South. Um, loved it down there, but I moved up here to actually attend NYU. And for those of us who left our hometowns and moved to New York City, you get stuck living here because life is so easy and great, it's hard to go anywhere else. So despite me having graduated NYU maybe 22 years ago, I'm happy to say <laughs> I still live two blocks from there as if I never left. Yeah, the college life goes on. The best four years of your life keeps going on. Oh, it's been tw- you know more than 20 for me at this point. But now that I'm older and I have kids and a dog, it's great to have all those dorms around us. Because mm-hmm. if I ever need a babysitter or a dog walker, you just walk past the dorms. and. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Look pro at tip. Pro tip right Hot there. tip. Pop. All right. So <laughs> if you are expecting a child and you need great access to the nightlife, the city, the retail – and you want to leave your kid behind, you live around NYU, uh, hit us up, and we'll uh, you know, secure you your housing around NYU. The Atlanta area, huh? Where, where, what part of Atlanta? So I grew up kind of in the northeast part of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. At, true Atlanta is defined not kind of... Not Buckhead. but mm-hmm. True Atlanta is defined as the perimeter. There's an expressway that goes right. in a circle around Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So you, if you live inside the perimeter, you get to say you live in Atlanta. Right. If you live outside the perimeter, you're lying to people when you say you live in Atlanta. Um, but we lived inside the perimeter. You're in, within the perimeter. Okay. I really... We were just there. Danielle and I were just there a few months ago. We really enjoyed... That's where... Oh, the reunion. The... the uh, the annual retreat. Retreat yeah. was. And our one of our offices is located in Buckhead. And that's a really nice, cool area. Oh, it's great. History, a lot of history there. There was a apparently an old shop there that had a uh, Bucks, like a Bucks head actually hanging from the shop, which is oh, why wow. they called it Buckhead. Wow. But um, yeah, that's a really nice area, Atlanta. Are you are you a college football fan there? Or uh, family, not or? too much. We no, didn't really okay. watch too much sports growing yeah, up. National and champions. So. I, I love the Braves. They were obviously a fantastic almost, team. Almost national champions. They were World Series winners too. Yeah, yeah right. recently. But in the 90s, they were sort of the, the go-to team for baseball. That's right. Were you around when the Olympics were? Yeah, I was. I, that was 1996. I was probably uh, probably in eighth grade, ninth okay. grade, oh, something okay. like that. So, so you were, you yeah, were so, we're, so you got to experience that in your hometown. How yeah, was that? It was great. I mean, it was a great catalyst for development and improvement of the city of Atlanta. Of there was lots of new infrastructure built. And now that I've been gone for so long, Atlanta no longer feels like what it felt like when I grew up there. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a not a small town. I think when I was growing up, there was about three million people there. But now I go back and I'm like, wait, where did all these high rises and stadiums and all this new culture and where did it all come from? It, right. it didn't really exist to the level that it does today. Atlanta is a city of significance in the U.S. I mean, people think about cities; they think about New York or D.C. or L.A. But Atlanta is what is it? It's the hometown of Coca Cola. Right, Coca Cola, Delta, Delta. UPS, um, Porsche has a headquarters there. Yeah. It really does have the you know, owner of uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, and, he's in Atlanta. Uh, or the it's no like Home a, Depot, it, right? It's a company. It's oh. a company that owns a bunch of franchises, and uh, one of our clients actually uh, just moved to Atlanta for uh, for that company that owns all these uh, retail or yeah. restaurant chains in, in uh, America. So Dunkin' Donuts being one of them. And now entertainment. Obviously, Tyler Perry just built that huge studio That's a couple right. of years ago. Um, right. It's got a great hip-hop scene. So, I mean, Atlanta really has become, you know... It's, a, a, it's kind of a mecca of business. Of culture. Business and, yeah, culture, yeah. So, where, you know, give me currently... I mean, we're on a podcast right now. This is your second time on my channel. Uh, 
do you have do you listen to podcasts at all and do you have a, a current favorite i do sometimes i try to dedicate as much time as i can to <laughs> enriching myself but right now i have a two-year-old boy and a three-year-old boy <laughs> and trying to pilot a, a business through you know obviously tumultuous economic yeah. times so i don't get too much time for that okay, all right um but to the extent i can i, I try okay good um I mostly watch Paw Patrol at this point. Oh, right. <laughs> right, Paw Patrol. Yeah, that's right. You live basically in Greenwich Village. Do you have a preference if you had – do you have a preference between West Village versus Greenwich Village? A lot of people in the, in, in the industry sometimes even don't know the difference or they forget to realize that there are two different markets. It's, it's really two incredibly different markets that people don't realize. We live in core Greenwich Village right now. If you ask me if I, I like it, I love it there. Yeah. There's so much energy and excitement and activity going on where we live. A lot. The downside of where we live, there's, there's a lot of energy and excitement and activity. <laughs> um, so my wife doesn't love it as much as I do. Um, she still really loves the neighborhood. But if you're looking for the simpler, quieter, you know, family-style neighborhood, I would definitely recommend the West Village over Greenwich Village. But if you need energy and excitement, Greenwich Village has all of that to offer. I mean, how much did you enjoy living in Greenwich Village and going to NYU at the same time those four years? It must have been probably one of the more memorable moments of your life. Yeah. It was great. I mean, my track was a little different. I started college very young, so I actually didn't start at NYU. I started at Georgia State University oh, okay. um, because I was very young. I was 16 when I started. Mm -hmm. So then my parents didn't want me to leave until I was a little older. So I only actually was at real NYU, believe it or not, for two semesters because mm -hmm. I had done so much credit at Georgia State. I did a semester at NYU. And then I went abroad for a whole year. I did a semester, a summer, and then I went abroad for a whole year, did another sem summer, another semester, and I was done. So I only, I only actually had two real semesters. Two real there. semesters. Wow. How did you get to Georgia State so young? You know, I was actually funny enough thinking about it last night. I don't remember what inspired me to do this. I think I had a friend who was a year older than me, and I thought it was cool that he went to college early. So I said, okay, I want to do that. <laughs> um, he went to a community college part-time and – our high school part-time. And I said, well, I want to go to like a, you know, a more recognized school if I'm going to do it. And the only option was downtown. Mm. And it wasn't going to be feasible to do both high school and college at the same time. Right. So they're like, look, you got to make a decision. Do you want to stay in high school or do you want to go to college? I was like, okay, I'll go to college. Why not? And, and that's how it started. Gotcha. Although I have to say, I would not recommend doing it. Okay. Well, sometimes you want to enjoy. Life is meant to be lived. Maybe enjoy those yeah. later teen years and early 20s. Yeah. Well, you, you forgo a lot of like great experience. And you know the college <laughs> process is really about developing yourself and sure. learning. And if you speed right. through it, then you miss out on a lot of important lessons mm -hmm. and interactions. Okay. More neighborhood questions for you. Upper East Side or Upper West Side? Upper West Side. Chelsea or Flatiron? I would say Chelsea. East Village or Alphabet City? I'm definitely, I, when I went to NYU, I was an East Village resident. Yeah. So I, I love the East Village. Alphabet City has a lot of offerings. The issue is transportation. Transportation, yep. Okay. Uh, tri Tribeca or Soho? I would say Soho. I yeah, like, there's not a lot of trees. At least in Soho, you have more activity. But Tribeca at night, just, it's so quiet, it kind of bothers me. Yeah, it is. It is very Deathly, ill, deathly quiet. But some why. people love that. Some but, people uh, need that. Some people need that. Right. Battery Park or Fideye? I would say Battery Park. <laughs> I have kids. <laughs> wow, really? I, I would say Battery Park yeah. simply because I'm a sucker for light and view mm -hmm. and, you know, the sun. And a lot of 
you know, finite streets tend to be very cavernous. You have big buildings everywhere. At least in Battery Park, you can be on the river and have river views. They have that great park. Um, so I would definitely choose Battery Park. A lot of great parks. <coughs> good, good walking trails, good running trails, all of that. Do, let's talk a little bit about social media. Do you have a preference on Instagram or TikTok? You know, I'm kind of a... I would say technologically uh, deficient. We didn't really? have Facebook until I was just graduating college, so nobody oh really goodness. had it yet. So I kind yeah, of MySpace. Uh, I wasn't cool enough for MySpace, but people did have MySpace. But I was just at the final tale of the generation that didn't really know technology. I don't have a TikTok. I understand you dance a lot on it. I'm not really a good dancer. Um, <laughs> it's so <not> just dancing. <laughs> it's, it's other things at this point as well. But I remember when it first came out, it was like everybody was learning the same dance on it. Um, so probably definitely more of an Instagrammer. Okay. Uh, Facebook or Twitter? Um, definitely, probably neither, really. I never really had a Twitter. Um, I don't, still don't understand the point now that it's being run, great. run the way that it's being run. And Twitter is basically the heartbeat of the earth based on oh. how you want to curate your feed. Oh. So if it's news, if it's, if it's uh, events that's, that are happening throughout the world. I mean, I follow the war in Ukraine very closely on Twitter too, but you, it's basically what's going on on the ground level. Now you have to be careful. Some people, some people that are giving news is may not they may not be as credible as you may think. Is that so? With the knowledge, <laughs> it seems to be like every outlet in social media. But I, I really like Twitter. I enjoy it. We talk a lot about real estate here in New York City, but let's kind of zoom out a little bit. And you're from Atlanta, you know New York, but do you have another favorite city or town outside of those two markets, and why? And, and we're talking about the United States. Personally, yeah, in the U.S., I could be outside actually if you want. I think the plight of every New Yorker is every you know few years you dream about running away and starting a different life. And you're like, okay, I'm going to leave the big city and I'm going to – and you start running down the list of yeah, where you'd yeah. go. You're like, I'm going to go to Miami. And you're like, ah, maybe not Miami. It's like, I'm going to LA. And you're like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where else you would go. I mean I wouldn't want to go back to Atlanta. Well, this is you – know, the question would be your favorite city. You don't have to live there. My favorite city probably would – if I were not – if I were going to split time somewhere, it would actually be Nosara, Costa Rica. Okay, Please dive into this. Um, it's a town that actually my partner, my business partner in Excel discovered, and it's this great sleepy yoga and surfing town. It's only dirt roads. Uh, you have to fly into Liberia Airport. It's about a two and a half hour drive through the jungle from there, and it's so raw and untouched, but still has enough kind of convenience to allow you to live functionally. Okay. It's, it's my favorite place. Okay. Um, I would it definitely go be, there if I weren't going to be. Seems to be an in influencer's hotspot. On TikTok and Instagram. <laughs> oh, it's really it's really gotten very popular in the past few years. I'm sure, it's yeah. also very small, so it can't really handle a larger capacity. But it really became a, a go to destination for a lot of people. Nice. Um, cool. It's a great little enclave. I didn't know you were a surfer. I'm I, I'm trying. I'm not a full flight surfer yet, but I, I try. I give it my all. Um, you know, I find working out boring, so it's one thing that I started doing that I said, okay, I can actually work out and. You know, it's relatively enjoyable at the same time. It clears your mind. You connect to the sea. So it's something I'm I'm trying to develop more and more skill in. Yeah, nature sports. There's nothing better. Nothing better than sports inside in the, in the nature. I am a big time snowboarder, and I similar concept. You know, there's nothing better than connecting with nature, seeing the landscapes from that vantage point. Also, you know, enjoying the sport. So let's go into a deep dive into just kind of the markets, what you're doing business-wise, what you're seeing across the board. Where are we right now? Your thoughts and procedures of the Excel with this new security law deposit that's been input in New York. And for listeners, 
if for security deposits on tenants, if you're a landlord and you have to take, you want to deduct or you need to deduct for security reasons, whether there's damages, there's a certain grace period before the lease ends that the landlord has to inspect, report, and then the tenant actually has the opportunity to correct those issues. And the compliance on this is very nuanced. It's difficult. I want to know from your standpoint you know, what the exact procedure is and if you're a landlord, what you need to be doing and what you guys provide as a service. Right. So, I mean, to kind of preface this, as you know, you kind of alluded to, all these rent laws changed back in 2019. August. And I'm not really sure who decided these laws and how they were decided, <laughs> but they really messed up, you know, the way real estate functions, you know, here in the city. They were ill-conceived. You know, a lot of these really hurt landlords in a way that I don't think the intention was to hurt the landlord as much. But to go to the security deposit issue, look, I think before 2019, some landlords were very lackadaisical about returning the deposit. It took too long. They were deducting from, they were deducting ridiculous things. And so we needed to overhaul the system. I think they took it way too far. And right now the rule is you've got to inspect the apartment, tell the tenant what's wrong before they move out, give them the opportunity to correct it. Then when they move out, if they create any new damage, you've got to – they don't have the opportunity to fix that, but you only have you have to let them know and return their deposit within 14 days. Right. Excel tends to be either a middle market all the way up to the ultra-luxury landlord – the expectation that we can really turn over a deposit in 14 days is absurd. Yeah. You know, I understand we needed to regulate it, and maybe 30 days is a fair amount of time, or 45 days, but in 14 days, you know, I've got to bring contractors in. In a lot of cases, we have custom work that we've got to do, that the tenant damaged a Venetian plaster wall or scratched, you know, custom flooring that's 100 years old or, you know, broke a faucet that was made by an artist in Italy. And sometimes when you're trying to get a hold of these custom vendors, especially the artist, it's going to take them a month just to call me back. Yep. So how can I realistically calculate the damages, you know, get the repair quote and deduct it from your deposit, and then send the deposit in 14 days. It's it's near impossible. And I understand we needed to protect tenants and get their deposits back faster, but I think this particular law went way too far. Okay. Do you guys have kind of a protocol? Well, maybe give the listeners what the exact protocol is. It's two weeks before the lease ends. You have to do an inspection. And then if there's damages, you have to give the tenant an opportunity to correct those damages. They probably won't. Or they're not going to do it the way that we want it done. They'll say, oh, right. it's fine. It's like, no, what it's not fine. tenant is going to contact Waterworks to get the custom faucet from Iran shipped to London to have it stained and then sent back to New York City? They're, they're not going to do that. Yeah, well, so, they're just going to say, oh, I broke the faucet. I gave you another faucet. I bought one for 80 bucks at Home Depot, and it's the same. It's, it's, no, it's not the it's same. definitely <laughs> not the same. What, what does the landlord – what kind of recourses does the landlord have in that instance? How do you guys mitigate that? Look, I think we just, we as landlords just have to do the best we can. We try to get the, you know, we do inspect, you know, at my firm, we actually inspect three weeks in advance because I want more time so that we can okay. prepare. Because we also want to know when the tenant's moving out, what work is the landlord going to have to do anyway? Painting, cleaning, sure. floor refinishing. Yeah. So we really want to be ahead of it because as landlords, we want to maximize the efficiency of our tenant's rent roll. So we want to minimize downtime. Cool. Yeah. And so we want to be ultra prepared. We try to work with the tenants to get them to fix it themselves. Most of them don't. The average tenant doesn't have connections to painters or plumbers or they electricians. Yeah. They, it's not that they don't. They just don't have time to deal yeah, with it. So we end up doing it, and then you're fighting over 
over, you know, and then there's all these fights about, oh, well, if a tenant scratches hardwood floors, you can't just fix the scratch. You've got to essentially, in a lot of cases, re-sand and stain the apartment. Yeah. So we have to deal with all of those fights. And look, I think we as landlords do the best we can to get it out as quickly as possible, but we also have to protect our owners. So we can't, you know, in order to comply with the 14-day thing, we do our best, yeah. but also we can't do it at the expense of our owners where we're being rushed and sloppy for the sake of meeting that deadline. Right. So there's really no hard one-stop gap answer or fix to make sure that both parties are pleased with the outcome, especially when it comes to deduction of security, right? Exactly. Especially with that, because also we're going to have disputes on what you think it's worth versus what it's worth. And, right. oh, the fridge is 10 years old. I broke it. Just buy a new fridge. It's like, well, no, that, that was a $12,000 sub zero that you destroyed. Right. Even if it was 10 years old, I can't get a new one for a thousand bucks. I'm going to buy you know a new one for $12,000. Do you think it's fair to landlords... And I get the politician's standpoint, right? Landlords are evil. Developers are evil. They kick out grandmas that are stabilized. And they try to kick, they harass them. I, I get that. Right. I get the socialism aspect of it. I get the leftist aspect of it. But do you think as a business, leave the politics aside, it's fair that landlords can only charge one month security deposits? I, I, that's another one of the rules that I hate as well. I mean, the whole, you know, one month rent, one month security I think that in a lot of ways, it was designed to protect the tenants. I think it actually hurt the tenants. Um, and also, it hurts the landlords. Because look, in a lot of cases, especially at the higher end of the market, one month rent might not cover the amount of damage that you can do to my apartment. It's not going to give me the protection I need if you bail on the lease. So really, from a business point of view, it's atrocious for landlords. Right. It also cut off a lot of you know, made life more difficult for you know the younger professional that just graduated. Because I can only get one month rent as security, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a lot more tough on who I allow into the apartment. So it actually, in a way, made it harder for people on the edge of qualifying versus not qualifying for the, an apartment. Because let's say you were a you know a, a student and you had decent or a recent graduate, you made just below the forty you know, times threshold, you had good credit, we might say, fine, we'll, we'll rent you the apartment, but we want three months security. And you would have gotten it, you would have paid the three months security and everything would have been fine. Now we're going to say, okay, you didn't make 40 times one month's rent, we're not going to rent you at all, or you have to get a guarantor. Mm -hmm. And it made it more difficult, you know, on foreign internationals that didn't have credit. In a lot of cases, they had no credit, they didn't have a guarantor, so we said, fine, pay the year up front, no problem, you know, you're a well-funded, you know, guy from, or girl from who, wherever, you know, pay us a year up front, give us security, and we'll right. rent to you, and now we can't do that, and right. we just won't take the risk. It's, it's, the, it's the, probably the bad actors, the predatory practices that landlords implement on some people that... It, it, it's, it, it's the one rule can apply to all. So, so that predatory practice may have ruined it for a lot of these other people that need, actually need housing and can afford it, but can't because of the laws. One other question related to the security deposit is, you know, you manage properties that are a couple hundred thousand to, you know, 30, 40, $50 million. Let's look at the high end for a second. Properties that are worth $10 million, maybe the rents are hypothetical, you know, 20 grand a month, 25, right. 30 grand a month. But one, I said waterworks earlier, so sorry I'm calling you guys out, but you know, let's just say waterworks showerhead is it's $5,000, one showerhead. Does the, does one or two of those fixtures, they go wrong, 
is the secure deposit even enough at one at one month? Even though we're talking thirty thousand, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, it probably isn't, right? Well, that's our challenge, especially <laughs> on the high end, which is you know, if you scratch our crotch mahogany door, that costs ten thousand dollars because it's solid and this isn't a third. I mean, one door could cost right. that. So, so these tenants are probably throwing a fit. Because, I mean, that's even to the wealthy in New York City, $10,000 is $10,000. It doesn't really, it doesn't matter. They don't treat it like it's a piece of hot dog, right? They still think it's a lot of money. Right. So, um, I guess going back to what I was saying was the Walmart security at the end of the day, you don't think it's probably enough. I don't think it's enough. Even in the high end. I think a lot of these laws need to be overhauled because, and also it doesn't make sense. Some tenants say, I don't want a guarantor. Can I just, and they beg you, can I just give you more security? I don't want to have a guarantor. You know, for whatever reason, they don't have one. You know, they want to give you more rent or more security in advance to secure it, but legally you can't take it. Right. So it's really, you know, it's hurting both owners and tenants. Mm-hmm. And look, I I understand the, you know, the arguments and tenant protections. And we as landlords want to protect our tenants. We want to live in a democratic society where everybody can, you know, thrive and, and things like this. But we're we're hurting landlords in the process. And yeah, it becomes not but business, but it becomes like a charity almost. Exactly. And look, you know, we all... You know, we all have this argument that the landlord's evil and he's some rich guy and he's driving his Bentley and he doesn't care about anybody and he's laughing about the world, just waiting to kick your grandma out from her unstabilized apartment. That's not really true. It's and like I work two percent of the landlords. That's maybe two percent, and and that's generational wealth that happened. Your average landlord is somebody who lived the American dream. They work like a dog to save up. They bought an investment property so that they'd have something to pass to their kids or. Uh, you know, some passive income or whatever, they don't have the pocketbook to withstand some of these tenant protections if things go wrong. You know, I've got landlords who still haven't received money since the pandemic, and we're still in court. They have oh. this whole program, which you might have read about in the news, this ERAP program, the Emergency Rental Assistance yep. Program. Yep. And if you have an active ERAP case, you can't have a court case suing the tenant for eviction as well. And I have one tenant, he pays $15,000 a month over here in Chelsea. He's been rejected from ERAP like two or three times already because they said, sir, you made way too much money. You do not qualify this. They rejected him, and then he opens the appeal again because that stays his court case. That stays his, yeah. And so we're two years in. And on the other side of an 80-year-old landlord, she has no money. She's going to lose the apartment, and we can't get this guy out. He happens to be a personal injury lawyer, and he's just playing the system like a fiddle, and he's punishing this lady nine ways to Sunday, and it it makes me want to cry. When I talk to her, and then I try to talk to him, I'm like, you're really hurting somebody here. She lost her daughter to suicide. The daughter was managing the apartment, was the original owner, and unfortunately, you know, killed herself about a month after this tenant moved in, and then he starts going after the mom because the air conditioning's not broken. Oh my goodness! It's like, uh, look, I get it. We all deserve to have everything in working order, but like, there was no sense of humanity or or consideration or compassion for this poor woman who just lost her da- daughter in a very tragic way. And instead, the you know, we had a lawsuit with them, and we're we're in court already for years. My God, that is rough. Brutal. That's the problem with the protections. Look, if you're safe and you're careful, and you take someone with good income and good credit, it's very rare that we have problems when somebody was careful about scrutinizing the paperwork, but it's these bad actors that ruin it for everybody and they can really cause a lot of damage and really kind of disappoints, 
you know, what you see out of humanity when you see these things happen. Maybe you should run for office. I'll, I'll vote for you. I don't know if people want the landlord to run for office. I think you get taken, you know, except mm. for, you know, tr- Trump skirted through on a, on a, on a different uh, platform. Yeah. He's a landlord. But, you know, we're, you know, as a landlord, I'm viewed as being evil. And sometimes I go on my Instagram and I'll see people comment, oh, another New York City parasite. Oh, gosh. We're yeah. compassionate, understanding people. We provide a legitimate business for a service that people need like we're Tons not the bad people. guy here. yeah 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 no i get it uh, switching gears on the compliance matters also gas stoves what's going on with that so there's legislation that they want to ban gas stoves is it really bad for you you know the problem with the gas stoves is the, the simple answer is well yes and no if you're being responsible and you're maintaining it you know, for the most part, everything's going to be okay. But the city's been, you know, especially here in New York City, we've been on high alert on gas for uh, the past the five years. The East Harlem Village. explosion, the East Village explosion, and you see the power of what gas can do if not harnessed correctly. I don't know how I feel about the gas fan. I'm not really a big cooker, so it doesn't really matter gas or electric for me because it's all going to go in the microwave anyway. Um, so, but you know, as a landlord, my worst fear is you know, especially in some of my properties, in the Greenwich Village neighborhoods. You got to you know, some of our buildings have younger profile tenants. Some of them love to drink and party, as you know, some of us all did when we were younger. And you know, it's concerning if you you know have a little too much to drink and you're going to make a pizza in the oven and you pass out and that gas is just running. You know, that's that really bad. It's concerning. So that's why electric kind of makes us a little more comfortable. Sure. But I don't know if it's necessarily going to be possible to ban gas stoves, period. I right. think that's ridiculous legislation. Right. Too many restaurants, restaurants need it. Yeah. You know, if you're a responsible person and you treat it well, you'll be okay yeah. and you're safe. But I don't know if it's really practical to ban gas stoves because of what's happened. Give me a basic on your business right now. What's the advice that you can give to first-time landlords, second-time landlords? Maybe someone's trying to get into multifamily for the first time and they want to buy a duplex. What are what are some of your pain points that you've seen? What kind of advice can you give to somebody like that right now? And then also, to add to that question, if you, let's just say, came across million dollars cash today, what would you buy, where, why, from a property management standpoint? You know, a lot of people don't want headaches, right? Right. Uh, so let's just say, let's scale it. Let's just say a million dollars, $3 million, and you know $5 million. So, I mean, look, a lot of my business consists of first-time landlords or even institutional landlords. And, you know, our, our biggest piece of advice, and especially on the first-time landlords, I think the biggest fear they have is they've read some article in the paper where a tenant is squatting in the house and destroying it and all these kind of things. Yeah, so, stores. you know, the biggest way that you can protect yourselves as a landlord... I want to say, and very happy to report, that 99% of the time when we have a problem with the tenant, we go back to do the postmortem to figure out what happened and where things went wrong. I would say about 99% of those cases would have been um, would have been uh, prevented had somebody really done a thorough check on the tenant. And you know, all the stories that I see of things really going horrific, there was red flags that were either ignored or just completely disregarded in the first place. As long as you're taking a tenant with 40 times one month rent as income, a credit score north of 700, mm. some money in the bank, a stable job history, we don't. that's not where our problems lie. Our problems as landlords lie 
where in places where you were desperate to rent the apartment, you couldn't find another tenant, so you just went with whoever showed up, or you were haphazard about you know collecting paperwork and said, ah, this guy looks normal, and you know if I had a dollar for every time. You know, somebody said, oh, well, I didn't run the credit because he seemed really nice and, you know, I know where they grew up and, you know, they justify for some reason skipping these important papers. Yeah, the details. Um, but the whole thing is, you know, do your due diligence on the tenant and we get very little due diligence that we actually get to do, but take it seriously. And number one, run the credit on the tenant. And that's the, my biggest pet peeve. And I hear more often than not, oh, I didn't run the credit because the condo is going to run the credit because yeah, okay. you have to approve them through the condo. I've heard that from people too. I hear that the more times over credit. and over. Or the, condo, look, let them run the credit. Exactly. And that's all great. And the, oh, the tenant doesn't want me to run it. He wants to buy a house. It's going to drop his score. And there's a big misunderstanding there. The condo only has right of first refusal. So as long as you give the condo everything they ask for, they can't say no. They can't say no. And in 11 years, we've been doing this. And we manage at this point around $5 billion in property here in the city. In 11 years, I had one uh, management company call me and be like, uh, Dylan, are you sure you want to move forward on this? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Why? He's like, well, you know the tenant just got out of jail last week after serving 12 years for drug dealing. Oh I'm like, oh, okay. And you saw the credit score was 500? I'm like, Oh, yeah. We, we obviously did not put this deal together. Our broker did. So I called the broker. I'm like, Jeez. so guys, what do we have uh, paperwork-wise on this tenant? They're like, oh, well, he gave us a spreadsheet. He has like about $80 million. He listed all of his assets on a spreadsheet. I'm like, do we have, do we have backup to support it? Do we, did we run the credit? No, he told me he didn't want to run it because he's buying – it's like the, and, and the and even then the condo couldn't say no. They're like, I hope you can find a way to withdraw this. You know, we really don't want this guy in the building. For, and I'm sure you guys don't want him as landlords if you actually didn't do due diligence. But if we said, hey, look, run him through, or if we and luckily the guy ran out of time, he had to move places or something. So the condo took so so long to approve everything, we couldn't get him in, unfortunately. Oh, um, so we dodged a bullet there. But if we said, oh, we don't care, then he's he's our tenant. And there's also a misconception that the eviction process is we call you, we say pay the rent, you say no, then we sue you, we see a judge a week later, the judge says, you know what, leave my courtroom, pack your stuff and get out tonight. That's not what happens. We're going to be in court one month, maybe a year, you're going to be paying a lawyer, thousands of dollars in legal fees, and there's no end in sight. I mean, there's a big misconception between how quickly people think eviction happens and how quick it happens. How the, long is it right now in New York City with the backed up from COVID, court, court, court It's cases? a mess. I mean, it's a, it's a mess. I read an article the other day, like evictions are down like 78% oh, from yeah. pre-pandemic from levels. Pre and it's yeah. not because people started paying their rent and, you know, behaving nicely. Right, right. There's just no, you know... There's no traction. It takes forever to get a court date. The, all the adjournments, oh, I need 30 days automatically. My lawyer didn't come. Everybody stalls. I mean, it's a mess. You, I could see somebody being in court for two years. So now that nobody wants to buy an investment property because of what you've – the horrors that you've explained, what would you buy at, this, at, these, at these price points of uh, just say a million, three million, five million? And why? You know, you, you've seen it all. You're the property manager here. You see it all in Manhattan. So I guess that, that just to preface this, the answer does not necessarily have to be in Manhattan also. Okay. No, understood. And to go back, it's not that it, there's horror stories. But like I said, if you're protecting yourself and being smart about it, I don't really have horror stories. Yeah. The horror stories come when you don't have the right team in place and when you haven't done the proper due diligence. And hire the right broker. 
brokers that know what they're doing also. And, and hire the right broker. And that's a lot of things. A lot of the brokers are here to make a commission and that's great. We all have to live and, and have a roof over our head and eat. But you know, we want a broker who also takes our interests at heart as well that's and right. not just their own. That's and right. for the most part, they do. Yeah. Where would I buy if I had a million dollars? There's a very popular saying that's going around the whole, probably the whole United States right now, which is date the rate and marry the apartment. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody who has cash or, or is willing to even get a mortgage, even if interest rates are higher, now is a great time to buy. You want people make money in downturns and when everybody else is scared to buy. If I had a million dollars, I don't think there's a specific neighborhood that that I would pinpoint, although I personally like Harlem mm -hmm. and those areas that are rapidly developing. East so, or West? Um, really, you know, more so East, but I'm sorry, more so West, but East Harlem is starting to get better and better. Mm -hmm. I like neighborhoods like South Williamsburg. I like more of the secondary neighborhoods because that's where you see real appreciation on assets. And it really depends on the goals of the investor. You know, it's like, you know, there's different, you know, look, if you buy a two-bedroom condo with lots of white light in, in Greenwich Village or West Village, that's the gold standard. Will the asset appreciate as rapidly? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but you'll have a very safe asset. You'll always be able to exit it. There's always demand for it. You don't have to be as focused on market cycles. But if you go to a, a more secondary or tertiary neighborhood, the opportunity for capital appreciation is greater. Sure. Okay. And it doesn't matter if it's a million dollars or $10 million. Good question. Yeah, good answer. All right. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's $3 million, $5 million. Yeah. It's all the same. And, mm -hmm. you know, and right now it's, the game is everybody's afraid to buy. You know, if, you, if you are willing to buy, you know, look, the good thing about the current problem we have with housing in New York right now is it's not a New York City problem. This isn't everybody left New York and they hate New York. No. This is a, a worldwide problem mm -hmm. where people aren't buying because of mm -hmm. interest rates. Right. So it's, you know, so buy. If, if rates are, prices are, are down now from where they were, now's a good time to buy. A little question, a side question to that is you get to see the operating costs of all of the condos that you manage in New York City. So that's operating cost breaks down to mostly two parts, right? The monthly common charges or the maintenance and then the real estate taxes. Right. And of course, there might be some assessments. So in ratio to the carrying costs on a monthly basis versus the actual rent that's gained, is there a particular neighborhood that stands out where the gap is the best for owners? I don't know if it's a neighborhood thing necessarily, but I think it's a building thing, a specific building by building. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for investors, your goal is to keep those carrying costs as low, low as possible because right. every dollar out is $1 less in profit. Right. So, you know, you want a well-run building that's clean, but maybe forego all the amenities, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of places, like I'm personally, I'm a, you know, New Yorker at this point, I've been here 22 years. I'm not an amenity guy. Give me a building that has an elevator, that has virtual doorman or a butterfly system. I don't need all the amenities. You know, mm -hmm. you want a very, um, you know, you want efficient square footage. So as much as you want a charming apartment that has all these nooks and crannies and all that, you're making more money when you have an efficient layout. Um, you know, things like that. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The Tribeca loft will net you more on a per square foot basis than a, uh, full service condo on 57th street. Exactly. And we're right. looking at returns. We're not looking at what are we offering the tenant? We're not looking at gross rent. That's we're right. looking at net, we're net, looking at net, net operating income. That's what we care mm -hmm. about. And sometimes you'll do a lot better with that Tribeca loft that's on in a six, you know, seven floor, floor yeah. elevator building yep. that you're going to do it, you know, 15 CPW. Being in the industry myself for 15 years now, the image I see of property management companies, first, I give them a lot of props. They are probably the, the most overworked and underappreciated and maybe probably the most underpaid within the real estate sector. Absolutely. The, 
amount of negative feedback that I get or I see online of the largest property management firms in New York City are extraordinary, right? From and not to just single out one company, but from Midborough, First Service, Element, BHS, the, the, the property management companies get the brunt. Not, not that I'm saying they're bad management companies, but it's just that people have a reason to complain more than going to a restaurant and paying for a meal. There's, right. You live there full time. So yes, you might have a leak. You might have a, um, a mice problem. You might have a roof that is mismanaged by a bad condo or co-op board. And who gets the brunt of it? Not the board. It's the it's the middleman. It's the property management company. So, you know, tell me, you know, what is going on with your business right now? That is a challenge. What are some of the pain points that you see? And then also, let's close this out with how do you guys get paid? So Perfect. Two part question. So the biggest pain points that we see, and look, I understand in a lot of cases the feedback on the management company. The challenge as property managers is, as you just said, we're middleman. So we don't necessarily have the final, especially Excel, where our model is a little bit unique in that we represent a personal owner. He makes all the decision, and, and we're focused on the apartment level and smaller assets. You know, if he or she makes a decision. It doesn't necessarily mean that we support it. That's Our right. job is to support the needs of the owner, right. and we're not going to do anything illegal. We're not going to do anything unethical. You know, we're an above board business, but you know, we're only the face of whatever direction we're given from a management company, or from an owner, or a broker, or whatever. It's not always within our, our control, especially at Excel, because. People come to us all the time. The elevators in our building haven't worked in months, and I hate you guys and your derelict landlords. It's I only manage your apartment. I don't manage the building. There's a whole other management company. So it's all about where the responsibility is. I think in general, like every other sector right now, everybody's overworked. Everybody's understaffed. You know, inflation is going up like crazy. So there's a disconnect between what people are making as salaries and what they can afford in life at this point. And I think that really creates a lot of challenges. But I think it's just, you know, they're overworked. And, you know, especially in a condo co-op. And when you read feedback on reviews, you know, it's a thankless job. And, you know, I don't think anyone ever really writes the landlord a great review when he did something good for them. Never. You never, it's not something you think about. You will, however, go on Yelp or Google or wherever the minute he wrongs you or you feel like he wronged you. Immediately. Immediately, you know, we get a, you know, it's, it's, it's insane and it's really a thankless job. Is it hard for you to hire people because, I mean, it is kind of a thankless industry? Do you, do you have trouble hiring the right people on your team? Or you know, you we're very lucky. We have a great reputation. We offer a completely different kind of energy than your standard management company sure. does. We're we're not the corporate, you know, we're not the first service. We're not the element. Or Orsid, right. We have a completely different take on the market. We also have a unique model. You know, look, if you're very, if you're smart and motivated, I would say property management is not going to be the best paid place for you, you know? And look, if you, you as a broker, if you rent a $5,000 a month apartment for us, your pay is going to be $5,000 as a commission. As a management company on $5,000 a month, I'm charging 5%. So for what you make in one rental of $5,000 a month, I have to manage the whole apartment for a year. I have to deal with the tenant yelling at me because the toilet broke. We got to collect the rent. We got to pay the expenses. We got to yada, 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 yada. And we make, what's that? 5% of the monthly rent, so it's two fifty and a correct. Yeah, so that's three thousand dollars for the whole year yeah. of tons and tons of work. Whereas, and I'm not saying brokerage is easy by no stretch of the imagination as it is, but the amount of time that we have to spend on the apartment, 
we make about half of what the broker makes by renting. The margin, it. yeah, the margin is, and the and the length you're married to the property for that year. Exactly, least, and so no matter what, we've got to deal with it. So I would say that it's harder to attract tra- talent for property management because there's other much better paid jobs out there for the smart and motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever foresee your company, your team, overlooking and managing these larger full service co ops or condos, or is that not an that's not a strategy that you want ever? Understand? It's really I lo- I love the investment community. If I, we would do larger buildings, you know for sure. But I would do rental buildings. I'm not really you know I think you always have to realize in life what you're good at, and everybody's good at different things. Everybody sure. wants to deal like with different things. I'm very good with an investor. I want to save you money. I want to operate the prop- property the right way. When it comes to boards, it's I don't think we really shine as much there. I right. think that. You know, with boards, there's a lot of committees that get developed and everybody's got a different opinion and a different agenda. I want to make you as much money as I can. I want to do it as efficiently as possible. And I want to do it with everybody happy. And with a condo building or co-op building, that's not the same agenda. You know, you have a different, you have different priorities. Oh, well, we want, you know, we're worried about what color the hallways are in the elevator. Invest in the, in the lobby. That's, yeah, that's not really your... your Investor doesn't care about that. Yeah, Does yeah, it look good? Do people like it? Yes. But are we going to fight over whether the halls are hunter green or, or navy blue? Like, it's not going to happen with an investor. Why should a landlord, individual co-op or condo owner... Well, you do townhomes too? Do you, do you, we actually you do townhouses do? and we yeah. do small multifamily as well. So okay. we manage buildings so up that. to about 30 units. Okay, so you can do that. You know, why, why would they want to hire your team? What's the, what's the major selling point there? Look, you know, I, mean, I know personally, New York, <laughs> maybe you can tell, you can tell us. Um, but as far as why, why would they hire Excel? You know, the one thing that makes us stand out is on an individual basis, we really care about our clients. I go home every night, you know, and when I'm in bed, you know, I'm not the best sleeper in the world. And I, I spend two hours just running through different scenarios in my head of the, of this client in this situation. Do we handle it the right way? So, I mean, it's a little psychotic what's happening with the amount that I think about the I mean, clients. think about and, the clients that aren't getting the grandma did, you talked about earlier. Exactly. Did we do the best job for our client? And look, I think on the, on the individual condo and townhouse level, we've, we've very much been the pioneer in making this service mainstream and what an investor needs. Just like, look, staging wasn't a huge concept 10 or 15 years ago either. Mm-hmm. And as time goes on, everybody really started to understand the importance of staging an apartment and how that helps you get top dollar for the unit. And now people are realizing that with property management as well. Now that we came to market and we did it in a mass way, people understand the importance of you know, especially in light of all the rent laws that changed back in June of 2019, they understand the importance of having a, a expert who cares about them and can help guide them through the labyrinth of the real estate market okay, here yeah. in the city. Gotcha. What, just a final question. How many units do you represent right now in your company and, and what's the total valuation of that those assets? So we don't give unit count numbers and the reason oh, yeah, I don't okay. give specific unit count numbers is as follows. Let's say I manage a full floor apartment at 220 Central Park South and that apartment is $80 million. You know, I'm an ultra luxury landlord in a lot of cases. How is my one unit for $80 million? How can I compare to a $2 million condo <laughs> in Williamsburg? It's so, I mean, it, yeah. it's a completely sure, different animal. Sure. And if I've yeah, got a $60 right. million dollar townhouse, do I consider it one apartment or one house? I can't really. True. Okay. So, you can't really say units. So, what's the total yes. value, approximate assets that you represent? About $5 billion. Actively. Um, and right actively manage uh, uh, apartments and houses and buildings. You know, we're located only in Manhattan and select neighborhoods of Brooklyn, which we call the coast, right sure, on the river, Williamsburg, Dumbo, Brooklyn Heights, those kind of things. So uh, total aggregate value is $5 billion, which 
I'm proud of. We've only been in business. We're finishing up our 10th year at the end of this month, which mm-hmm. we're already already there. And we've already amassed that portfolio. And I view us as just having gotten started. Good. And, and do, you, do you want to expand outside of New York, New York State as well or New York City as well? You know, that's something I also spend a lot of time thinking about. And, you know, the issue with Excel or any other management companies were service providers. Sure. And for me, I want to build the the most reputable business I can. For me, it's not about the money. It's not about anything other than right. are our clients happy and quality are we protecting products. them and quality. And when I start looking at expanding to other markets, I'm now at the... You know, I no longer control it because I can't be everywhere. And what does that do to our quality? And to be honest, there's so much opportunity here in New York City. How could you really even leave? I mean, there's so many different things. I'd like to buy real estate and have our own real estate as well. So there's so much focus we could have here. I'm never leaving. Well, Dylan, as a friend in the industry, as a speaker at Compass on many occasions, as an industry leader yourself, a founder, a CEO, I... Continue to look forward to see your business grow. Perhaps we could do this again in the future. And uh, for those listeners, obviously follow Dylan again on Instagram, Dylan Pachulik website. It's all in the show notes. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your insight, your wisdom, your knowledge. And I look forward to connecting with you again. Great. Thank you so much, talking Danielle. It's been a real pleasure. And we hope to see you again soon.